This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So, you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So, whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Ma'am, what, what happened to you? I got maced. You got maced? Yeah. <laughs> and what happened? You were trying to go inside the Yeah, I, I made it like a foot inside and they pushed me out and they maced me. What's your, what's your name? Where are you from? My name is Elizabeth. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee. And why did you want to go in? We're storming the Capitol. It's a revolution. Thank you. You are about to hear an episode of Failed State Update. I am the host, Joseph L. Flatley. If you are hearing this on Ocelli.com or any of the other streaming services or podcast feeds that carry my show from time to time, please uh, subscribe to Failed State Update. Check me out on the web at LennyFlatley.net or follow me on Twitter at Lenny Flatley. We continue to follow this breaking news, the chaos at the Capitol. Everybody stay down! The seat of government went on lockdown this afternoon with members of Congress inside as supporters of President Trump invaded and clashed with police. Legislators inside the House chamber told by police to put on gas masks after tear gas dispersed in the rotunda. The building went into lockdown but protesters were already inside, marching through Statuary Hall. One man carried a large Confederate flag just outside the Senate chamber, and inside, another took to the podium himself to declare Trump had won the election. What the hell was that? Completely insane. Very bizarre watching people storm the Capitol, watch the police caught with their pants down. Multiple agencies don't know who the hell was supposed to be in charge. But if we learned anything from this summer, summer of 2020, it was that if the law enforcement agencies want to put on a show of force, <laughs> they, they could have done that. I've been watching, you know, the footage and reading the accounts of uh, the last 24 hours and you know I can't help but think of 20 years ago almost to the day I was in uh, Washington DC protesting the inauguration of George W. Bush now the early 2000s were really characterized by the anti-globalization movement although there were I think a few events prior to Seattle in 1999 it was really the uh what are they called? The Battle of Seattle. The uh, WTO meeting in uh, November 1989 in Seattle that really sparked off the whole anti-globalization effort. And it really wasn't until the end of the 90s when our country had been irrevocably changed by, you know, this weird new conservatism and uh, this weird new emphasis on Wall Street to the detriment of everybody else. People had finally had enough around the end of uh, Bill Clinton's <laughs> second term. And um, 1999 came, and the Battle of Seattle came, and it really looked, at the time, on the ground, it really looked like this was going to be the 2000s. And, you know, this was the time the Internet was new. There was no social media. Web pages sucked. The Internet kind of sucked, to be perfectly honest. And we certainly weren't walking around with... Uh, supercomputers in our pocket. But still, activists on all ends of the spectrum saw that the internet was going to be a huge organizing tool. And one of the ways that played out was uh, the creation of the Independent Media Center movement. People all over the country availed themselves of this grassroots communications platform, and there were independent media centers in various cities, and they really followed the protests, the uh, anti-globalization protests. I know firsthand, me and uh, some friends of mine, including Vincent Irene, we worked under the rubric of the Emergency Broadcast Block, EBB, 
organized, I think, mostly by my friend Gretchen King. And, um, yeah, we would basically take the Greyhound into, you know, cities before there are these, like, large protests, these large, I mean, uprisings, really. Go to Boston, go to D.C., go to New York. I was going up and down the eastern seaboard helping set up web radio stations so we could stream the protests, the riots, the black bloc anarchist actions and you know the speeches and and i think vincent said that we took part in uprisings in 20 some cities over a couple years um i know personally i was probably at a dozen and you know it felt big it felt like if we couldn't stop george bush from being elected we were going to at least just use this as an opportunity to create an infrastructure, communications, and uh, make life hell for the corporations and the capitalists for the next eight years. You know, what they used to call organizing before Facebook and Twitter and social media in general just kind of ruined that for us. So yeah, I was in D.C. 20 years ago, and things played out a little differently after the inauguration, they go to the White House, they get in the limos, and then they drive down Pennsylvania Avenue to the throngs of cheering Americans, and then they stop like a block or two from the uh, from the White House, and they walk the rest of the way. You know, we were protesting and covering the protests in D.C. for like a week or something, or like three or four days, three or four long, cold, rainy days prior to Inauguration Day itself. And when the day came around... It was like we were around D.C. people and then like, you know, D.C. residents and punk rockers and troublemakers. And all of a sudden, like the the atmosphere changed. It got like 20 degrees colder. And all of a sudden we started to see all these like Republican Party D-bags walking around in their their gowns and their the women and the men in their suits wearing like fur coats with cowboy boots and cowboy hats and it was like it was like hell escaped texas and came up to dc and it was just like oh my god is this the next four years is this the next eight years and then um we went to the to check out the uh presidential motorcade and we got to the bleachers in pennsylvania avenue and the uh, motorcade pulls up and it starts to slow down and then it hits like the point where bush and his family are going to get out and walk and all of a sudden you hear this booing and hissing this roar from the crowd and rather than stop the limo driver hits the gas and speed by while like bananas and rotten tomatoes and stuff are like flying out of the air and bouncing off the car it was pretty amazing and then we left to fight another day, left D.C. to fight another day. But of course, you know, there were other anti-globalization protests, but 9-11 really put an end to that. And, you know, I have one other anti-globalization memory I would like to share. Um, Philadelphia. So this was 2000. This is summer of 2000. Uh, the Republican National Convention. Uh, it was hot as hell. It was... I don't know how I handled it for, you know, the week I was there. But, you know, I spent so much time with activists and people with, like, really cogent understandings in the world and injustice and how it needs to be fixed. And just being there was an education, you know. And on top of that, we were building servers and trying to broadcast our web radio station, trying to get the news out. The whole thing was incredible. The nation's entire news apparatus was based in Philadelphia for that week. So all the different networks had like their little outdoor studios where they were doing the news. And I remember marching, probably being chased by cops, going past some building while Tom Brokaw was doing the nightly news. I I ended up seeing the clip that night and, you know, Tom Brokaw with his stentorian upper crust, you know, sounds like a... Thurston Howell III doing the news. He took a swipe at the protesters. He's like, I don't understand what they're protesting for. What what could they possibly have to protest? The heat? Or the price of a Philly cheesesteak? I have to imagine that lame joke got a laugh somewhere. I just understood then the difference between the elite class and the rest of us. The people he was talking to, and himself, and Tom Brokaw himself, versus people in the street or in factories or wherever, trying to live their lives and make a difference. You're going to hear an awful lot 
you know, from and already have about the insurrection, the right wing coup attempt at the Capitol building this week. And, you know, the injustice, the fact that the police didn't put up any kind of a fight where if it was Black Lives Matter, they would have been probably shot. And I'm not at all coming from a place of uh, <laughs> backing the Trump protesters or QAnon or any of that stuff. But I just can't help but think that if Tom Brokaw or Thomas Friedman or any of the famous blowhard Toms actually listened to what we are saying on that day 20 years ago, that we wouldn't have Trump today. I can't possibly say everything there is to say about the uh, the attack on the Capitol, but um, I do have a couple interviews here that I think will kind of highlight things a little bit. The first one being William Arkin. And I, I just got off the phone with Bill um, this afternoon, and he's been really covering the events in D.C. like since before they happened. Um, you know, he was he did some stories for Newsweek about um, about the security plans for for D.C. for uh, this week and and next week and the week after that. Um, a lot of really important analysis, and I will link to his latest articles in the show notes. But in the meantime, for some priceless perspective from the uh, journalist, commenter, and uh, former U.S. Army soldier, here's William Arkin. I don't think there's a commissariat associated with all of this, but um, nor do I even think it was one group uh, by any. Uh, and and my understanding is initially there were only a few hundred people who went to the Capitol, but then ten, you know, more than ten thousand eventually <clears throat> congregating. So uh, obviously, a lot of people came to D.C. with the intention of. Um, marching, et cetera. But, but how it actually unfolded, I mean, I guess one of the unfortunate elements of the nature of the news media right now and probably the nature of discourse is that uh, nobody seems to be very interested in finding out what these people actually think and who they are and where, what, what, and what they were hoping to achieve. And uh, uh, just seems like a, terrific blind spot. I mean, uh, uh, it was like the cameras and the commentators and the entire uh, universe of television dumb yesterday was focused on uh, a too little and too late picture of the Senate chamber uh, while there were tens of thousands of interesting people to interview that they didn't even bother to ask what they were doing. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and it, it just really felt like, you know, like everybody I was captive, captivated by the coverage. And it really just felt like this, you know, from the media's point of view, that it was just this, like, act of God, this thing that just happened, erupted out of nowhere. And yeah, and everybody seemed to be pretty, like, incurious as far as who these people were, what the motivations were. And um, the FBI threat assessment didn't see this coming. Well, that's not clear. So there was a formal threat assessment prepared for the inaugural period. Uh, but but really, that only covers the official events from January 15th to the 21st. Uh, and, and there were certainly lots of reports, especially if it was going to be the case that Donald Trump um, came to Washington and, and, and appeared at the ellipse. And, and, and that wasn't altogether clear until maybe Sunday or so. Once, once that happened, however, certainly in my reporting, I was hearing gobs of people saying, uh, we're not ready. And, uh, uh, and yet at the same time, I was hearing people saying, well, the FBI has a pretty good handle on who these people are and where they're coming from, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, uh, there was a breakdown, really, I, I'm going to focus my attention reporting and, and thinking about this issue as 
as a breakdown of the federal government because we can't do anything about people protesting. I mean, that's their right. And, and it's, and it's the Capitol police and the federal government and the, our prodigious, ridiculously oversized security apparatus in Washington, D.C. to try to keep the peace, whether that's Black Lives Matter or, or White Lives Matter. It doesn't matter. And, and, and they failed. They failed miserably. And, and if there were political partisan reasons why that happened, I want people to be held accountable if there were organizational reasons why it happened, uh, I want them repaired. And particularly the one that I think is now clear, which is that the District of Columbia uh, needs to be a state, uh, uh, really stands in the way of um, the ability of the district to, to, to maintain law and order. And, uh, and, 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 and so to me, I don't know. You know, I have been on TV directly after 9-11. I've covered wars. Um, I generally tend to be a guy that's pretty unemotional and equivocal. I think it makes me a better reporter and a better observer and analyst of the scene. And I feel that way yesterday as well. I wasn't really, um, you know, to me it was like, wow, we sort of got what we deserved. Um, but I thought that there was a funny uh, symbiosis between the Congress and the people reporting the Congress that, oh, my God, we're in an unprecedented um, uh, horror show. And the reporting is all about the narcissism of our being in this unprecedented reporting show. Like that that was that that took over, that there were very few who could take a step back and say uh, and ask the tough questions. And especially once uh, the the uh, rioters were ejected from Congress, I, I said in my Newsweek article today, shooed away. <laughs> and I said it in I said it intentionally because. Because why, why didn't we see hundreds, if not thousands, of arrests? Um, it, that the truth of the matter was that everybody was so much having their kumbaya moment that they couldn't even ask the tough questions like, "What the hell happened to the Capitol Police?" and 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 what ha and what happened that this could have possibly even gotten to this place? And uh, and even today. I don't really feel like those questions are being adequately asked. I just don't, I just, I, I mean, I know they will be, but I can see as much a possibility that a democratic Congress and a feel good Biden administration will say, let's not dredge up the past. Let's move on as, 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 much as somebody will say, we need a commission to get to the bottom of this and heads should roll that I feel like, like I'm by no means confident that this is going to be a result in any accountability. And yet at the same time, I'm completely confident that it's going to result in draconian additional security and intelligence um, constraints on first amendment rights and, uh, and, and, and freedom of movement in DC. So on the one hand, they're not, they're not going to be accountable, the people who are responsible for this mess, and I mean the government people, and yet on the other hand, they're going to institute for sure all sorts of constraints that are going to affect us dramatically. If you could kind of like go back in time to the beginning of the week, like what were you kind of expecting to happen? Were you Did you see, you know, because I mean obviously – you know the the pro trump protesters had been talking about their march and going to washington for quite a while what did you kind of see unfolding yesterday so anticipating a speech at the ellipse i anticipated that donald trump would stand up there and say let's march on the capitol and they would do so and they would be met by a wall of law enforcement ready for them to march on the Capitol. 
I think we could ask any drunkard in a bar if that was going to happen, and they would say yes. But yet somehow our entire Homeland Security, FBI, and intelligence community apparatus seemed to miss that. So who was supposed to be in charge? Um, who was supposed to be at the top of the security preparations? Well, it, 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 as I wrote on uh, Monday, it's a funny theme. We're in a theme between what's called the National Security Special Event. That's the inaugural. Uh, that right. And that start, and that's January 15th through the 21st. And that had been declared months ago, and the preparations for that inauguration had begun as far back as June. So, but because it was very clear that there was going to be protest and even the possibility of violence before the 15th of January, and certainly we knew that it was going to be around January 6th, um, the, 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 the apparatus of security that was being put together for the inaugural was not really um, prepared for Wednesday. And it was not really even revising itself for Wednesday. Like somebody, I remember one of my editors or somebody asked me, well, why don't they just extend the national security special event to include January 6th? And it's a damn good, it's a damn good question. But that national security special event is declared by the Secretary of Homeland Security. And the Secretary of Homeland Security was in Cyprus and Bahrain on so, I mean, you know, so so there wasn't even an official to necessarily do it. That would have put the Secret Service in charge of coordinating the overall federal effort. But there are also other themes. And one of the themes is that Capitol Hill is kind of its sovereign territory. And the U.S. Capitol Police, which is part of the Congress, is in charge of security on Capitol Hill. And so even though the Metropolitan Police Department, the D.C. police, were there in force, um, the, the Capitol Police are the, is the primary force um, that is responsible. And, and that, you know, that's not a small force. I mean, it's 3,000 people. I mean, they, I, I, and again, if they felt that they were going to be overwhelmed on the 6th, then they certainly could have already asked for the, the D.C. National Guard. They could have asked for a lot more police. They could have asked for the gigantic federal law enforcement organizations that all seem to be ready to come out on June 1st when protesters and racial justice protesters were on the streets. I mean, we had everything from the Arlington Police Department in Virginia to the Federal Protective Service uh, on the streets June 1, and then all of a sudden, what, all these guys were on vacation yesterday? So I, I, it, 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 it is the case that no one was in charge, but it's not an excuse that no one was in charge. I, it, 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 it's, it's, it's a fact, and it is not an excuse. You know, you were going to have Trump probably speaking. I, I guess it wasn't confirmed until last minute, but... You're going to have Trump there, and you were going to have tens of thousands of people there. Why would Homeland Security not designate that a special event? Well, I think part of the answer is uh, there. There are there. You know, that's reserved for the the most severe um, in, incidents in which there's a potential threat to the president. So after nine eleven when this whole term national security special event was invented, uh, like the color coded threat warning system, everything became a national security special event. And then after a few years, they said, well, we got to stop this nonsense because it's expensive and it's ridiculous. And if we call everything a national security special event, then, we're, then nothing has any meaning. So they created a, other tiers of, of, uh, of special event ratings that then like for instance the super bowl and things like that were given these ratings rather than called these uh, national security special events so the national security special events tended to be only when 
the president was involved or when there was a threat to the president. And so that meant the State of the Union, the inaugural, uh, and other important presidential events. Well, so you could, in theory, argue, if you're a bureaucrat working in the government, that, well, there's no threat to Donald Trump. <laughs> he's, with his, he's with his peeps. So, uh, so there would be no reason necessarily to do that. But that's not an excuse not to have had adequate security. It's not, it isn't only triggered by the existence of a national security special event. Security is just the responsibility of the multiple police forces which exist in the district, federal, state, local, etc. So, you know, there's the U.S. Park Police, there's the U.S. Capitol Police, there's the Uniform Division of the Secret Service, there's the Federal Protective Service that's responsible for protecting government buildings. There's the police forces of ICE, of Homeland Security Investigations, of Customs and Border Protection, of the FBI, of the DEA, of the ATF, all of whom were present and active in the June riots, and yet somehow were not available yesterday. Yeah. So, so I guess that's the question, like, who made the call in those instances to stand down is that correct stand down or not stand up so uh uh you know i don't have any evidence from my reporting that there was any police force that was jonesing to do something then they were told not to but it certainly is a big question but what i do have evidence of is that there were police forces available who were not called out and so Somebody had to have made that decision or sometimes, and I will say this in the body language of, of Washington, Washington, D.C., it could also be the case that um, uh, that people uh, didn't take seriously uh, that that that, you know, this boys will be boys situation would actually descend into what it did and thereby really and truly just didn't take didn't take the measures that they should have taken. Are you kind of describing a scenario there where people are just, you know, officials are going, well, these are Trump supporters, it's not Black Lives Matter, it's not Antifa, so we're just not going to take the threat as seriously? Maybe not that they're not going to take the threat as seriously, but that they're not going to start from the assumption that somehow the demand for racial justice equals violence and the demand for reversing the constitutional election doesn't. You know, there are videos of like, that are alleged to show like Capitol Police moving blockades. So when, you know, when uh, the Trump protesters were coming in or, you know, different things that people are saying indicates that individual officers or that the Capitol Police itself, perhaps, were aiding and abetting the protesters. Did you come across any of that? I'm just wondering how to place those social media claims into an actual con- reported context. Well, I mean, I, 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 I certainly, I mean, I've had emails out the yin yang today and yesterday of people sending me tips, so to speak. I've kind of followed up on the ones that seem credible, and certainly there are uh, pictures. I've now seen them with my own eyes of. Uh, police officers moving the barricades. Now, uh, were were police officers moving those barricades because they uh, needed to collapse their defenses and 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 it was a tactical move? Th- that we don't know. And also, who were those police for, uh, officers? Because it, it, a lot of them seemed to me to have D.C. Metropolitan Police um uh, patches on their shoulders, so uh, it's not it's not necessarily a given that they were only the Capitol Police and or that they were the Capitol Police. Uh, having said that, uh, you know I've also seen those pictures of of the uh, flak jacketed and and camouflage clad U.S. Capitol Police uh, uh, looking like uh, you know an army. Uh, on the Capitol steps uh, for the Black Lives Matter protests earlier this year, last year. And um, 
and 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 again, one has to ask the question: even if this uh, this group was intent upon uh, invading the Capitol and 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 breaking windows and using chemical irritants and doing all the things that they're now being ascribed with doing, so what? You know, there's thousands of these guys on duty and they're supposed to protect the frickin' capital. And I don't really see, other than those few scenes of like guys standing inside the House of Representatives chamber with their guns, that happening. So something happened wrong. And then, you know, there's this woman from San Diego who was killed uh, it's not clear who killed her, like whether it was a Capitol Police person or the Metropolitan Police person. But I'm kind of asking the question, and I'm doing so in a serious way. I mean, why weren't warning shots fired outside? I mean, when you're already at the situation where you have been invaded, uh, it doesn't really make sense to start shooting. I mean, it, it just doesn't. And, and And there, I think that the Capitol Police just completely lost control once once the uh uh the intruders once the uh you know the 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 trumpers uh, got into the interior perimeter and and it's important also like i i again i want to think like a military person think like a cop when i'm talking to you here uh if your entirety of your contingency plan and the entirety of your security apparatus is to protect the perimeter of the Capitol. And you actually have never conceived that anyone is going to get through that perimeter. Then it may indeed be the case that they really didn't have the ability to protect the, the Capitol, except like it, it, this door or that door or this corridor or that corridor. Once the, uh, the rioters were inside. Uh, I, I, I will say that once they were inside, I, I, I think probably uh, short of shooting at people, I'm not sure how they would have regained control. And I can imagine that uh, I can imagine that an order might have been gone out that says, you know, okay, we just got to let these guys, you know, exhaust themselves and take the selfies that they want to take because that's going to be evidence to arrest them tomorrow. And, uh, and uh, you know, just make sure that we're protecting the members of Congress. And that's the funny part, too, because the Capitol Police has this weird bifurcated responsibility, right? They also have to protect the, the, the members of Congress. And there's, and there's 535 of them. And so you, you do the math. If there's 3,000 U.S. Capitol Police and 535 members of Congress that you have to get to their offices and safe spaces, et cetera, the undisclosed locations, what a bunch of bullshit that is. Um, uh, the truth of the matter is that you've now taken half or two-thirds of your force and you're, and you're doing that. You're doing just that. So... So once once the perimeter is breached, uh, it doesn't seem to me like you uh, that like like you're going to be able to necessarily control the situation. So really, the key question is, why the hell was the perimeter breached so easily? I think somebody on NBC said last night it was 10 to 12 minutes between when they arrived at the Capitol and when they were inside the building. What? How is that possible? Do you have any any idea of like who the protesters were? I called a couple of guys I know in militias around here and asked them and you know, they were like, Oh, we <laughs> we didn't want any part of this. We all stayed home. So I'm wondering like that so that's just my small sample size. Was it militia activists or, you know, just right wing protesters or like kind of what was the complexion of the crowd? I'm wondering. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, first of all, let me just say, it's a great question. And again, I go back to what I think is sort of the natural narcissism of the moment to say that it's pretty extraordinary that we had hours of coverage of this in which very few 
journalists seemed to take the time to ask people who they were. <laughs> it's just like, what, 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 what? Like, like, do we need to see those four women sitting in the gallery of the house any longer? I mean, let's get out and actually find out who these people are. And so, and so I'm not saying per se that it's a lack of curiosity, but, but the truth is that whoever you have that's covering Capitol Hill, they're covering Capitol Hill and their sources are the senators and the Congress people, and they need to report on them. And they were all, you know, frantically texting anybody to get them to come on the phone to, to talk to the media, blah, 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 blah. It's a big boys game. And so they're not really interested in, in the crowd because at the moment that they're doing it, it's all happening to them. So, so, so I, I think that we don't know the answer. And I kind of feel like even prior, um, you know, I was on a Democracy Now! interview, I think on Tuesday or when, no, Wednesday morning. Uh, and, and there was a, a, somebody on who had been covering the, the, uh, the, the groups that said they were going to be in Washington, D.C., but but to tell you the truth, I mean, the, the conversation to me was very general and very broad brush. And, uh, and, I, and I, do, I, don't, I just don't feel like we have done a very good job. We, all of us, have done a very good job of understanding who these people are, let alone who is on the streets of Portland, Oregon, or who is on the streets of, of Minneapolis. I mean, we can say in this kind of shorthand uh, Black Lives Matter or a racially, uh, you know, protesters for racial justice or QAnon or militias or Proud Boys. But we've almost become too familiar in a way in the sense that, like, I love it when government officials say, you know, UBL, uh, uh, you know, Osama bin Laden, as if like they know the guy, you know, or KSM, the, the mastermind of, uh, of 9-11, as if somehow by like using the shorthand, we're, we're connoting that we actually know something about them. When the truth of the matter is that uh, we, we say QAnon, we say Proud Boys, we say militias, but, but we don't really delve very deeply into who they are, what their grievances are, what their politics are, what they want. And um, it's, it's a terrible error on our part. They're not going to go away when Donald Trump goes away, and, and probably Donald Trump isn't going to go away. So, uh, so we need to understand. We need to understand. And we just need to do a better job. And, and I hope that one of the things that will come out of this is that the news media organizations will – redouble their efforts to put people uh, seriously onto those beats um, to actually try to uh, make contact with these organizations in a serious way and cover them as a serious political force in our society Uh, because they are a serious political force in our society, whether we like it or not. Buenos dias, señor y señoritas. Esta noche estamos... So that was William M. Arkin, award-winning journalist and author of a dozen books on national security issues, currently writing for Newsweek and has written a number of stories about what's going on in D.C. And you'll find the relevant links and perhaps some irrelevant links uh, on uh, in the show notes. And up, coming up next is Vincent Scotty Irene, longtime peace activist, advocate for the homeless, and media agitator. In the 90s, he founded Blast Furnace Radio, Pittsburgh's first web radio station. And it was through Blast Furnace that I ended up being involved in media activism myself. He's been in the trenches for a long time and out on the street for a long time, so he will definitely have some interesting things to say. Some interesting perspective so i glad we got him on the show and here he is
what happened yesterday was just unimaginable. It's like it's like the barbarians have, you know, stormed the castle. They go, oh, my goodness, they don't even bathe. And that was really the vibe of that I was getting from all the ABC, NBC, CBS. You know, it was like CNN. It wasn't. It was how dare these people in work boots, <laughs> you know, put his boots on a Nancy Pelosi's desk. I'm still Googling which, which mints are they. Apparently they have a chocolate center on uh, <laughs> Pelosi's desk. <laughs> Do you think that people are kind of primed for this bad behavior and kind of lured over to the dark side because of the state of the economy and how we're not taking care of each other and how we're treating poor people? I mean, when you see a line two and three miles long to hand out a box of food, you know, and that that was something unimaginable. We were outraged when they started handing out government cheese after the uh, steel workers uh, were unemployed in 82, 83. And now, you know, we have people who are uh, uh, middle class, you know, just who are food poor. And so, yeah, when you have those type of needs that people are wor- working for, of course, they're going to uh, they're going to be very angry. And uh, they've been waiting to express this. They've been tinkering in this, their basements with these ideas like the John Birch Society. You know, they've been out in the woods of Montana as survivalists, you know, practicing what they're going to do when uh when the lord returns and and it it was found to give place somehow when when a person like trump gave them hope that you know that we're not going to put up with these people any longer we're going to you know storm the gates of hell when your basic needs are not met the anger caused by that is something you know unimaginable and uh, they've never had to go to uh, a dumpster to get food for their families. You know, you've you've been an activist for a very long time. Um, is there anything that you saw over the last 24 hours that strikes a chord as far as, like, is this completely unprecedented, or do you kind of see precedents going back in recent history as far as, like, what happened last yesterday and last night? when uh, Captain America was uh, addressing the crowd uh, when, you know, he was, he was saying that we're going to go to the Capitol right now. I mean, that's why that was, that was bad because this has never happened before and breaking windows down and having people give you the signal that it's okay to go in or, or the, the, um, the guards moving aside barricades I mean, it's like everyone was waiting for this uh, this moment to happen. But, you know, again, the reason why what happened yesterday was so bad is because it's never happened before. And because now that it happened, it's within the realm of the possible. It's no longer an idea. You know, it's no longer uh, Trump just uh, appealing to his base. I mean, they have finally done what they have been talking about now for decades. And I, I just uh, pray to God that it never happens again. Thank you, Vincent, for uh, sharing with us, and thank y'all for listening. This has been Failed State Update, recording this on January 7th, 2021, the night after all hell broke loose in our nation's capital. Make sure you check me out on Twitter, at Lenny Flatley. I can be reached through my website, LennyFlatley.net. Be sure to uh, share this uh, podcast with your friends. Thanks. Get a wallet, G is an urban Vietnam. Give-
Indiana rise. Without objection. Can I ask you Without objection. Mr. Speaker, as the congressman who represents Muncie, Indiana, and Delaware County, home to the most famous cat in the world, I rise today for the awesome and important duty to pay a happy birthday wish to Garfield. Not President Garfield, but someone probably more famous in this day and age than that. A large, orange, slovenly, lazy cat born in the mind of an Indiana native by the name of Jim Davis, who, along with Garfield and literally dozens of artists and artisans, make their home near Muncie, Indiana, the world headquarters of Paws Incorporated. It was, in fact, today in 1978 that the Garfield strip debuted in 41 U.S. newspapers 
Several months after its launch, the Chicago Sun-Times abruptly canceled the cat. And over 1,300 angry readers, it is reported, immediately demanded that Garfield be reinstated. Uh, it was, as they say, the rest is history. And today, now, 263 million readers across the globe read Garfield in 2,570 newspapers every day. Recently, the Guinness World Records named this cat, Garfield, the most widely syndicated comic strip in the world. And it all comes proudly from East Central Indiana. You know, it's said that people relate to Garfield because Garfield, in many ways, is them. Uh, he is a human in a cat suit, his creator Jim Davis likes to say. Garfield loves TV and he hates Mondays. He'd rather pig out than work out. In fact, his passion for food and sleep is matched only by his aversion to diet and exercise. A cat after my own heart. Uh, he, he'd like mornings better if they started later. Coffee strong enough to sit up and bark. And he, pre he pledges regularly, I'll rise but I won't shine. Jim Davis, born in... July of 1945 in Marion, Indiana, was raised on a small black Angus cow farm. He graduated from Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, where he majored in art and business. And he is the founder and president of Paws Incorporated, a full-service licensing studio created and established in eastern Indiana. They have received numerous awards, including four Emmys, the National Cartoonist Society Award, just to name a few. So I rise today in the midst of serious debates and serious discussions to pay tribute to a very large orange American tradition. Here shown bursting out of his birthday cake on this, the 25th anniversary. I'll never forget, Mr. Speaker, as I close, Jim Davis and I first became acquainted 15 years ago. He told me of all the offers he had had through the years to move Garfield which is internationally syndicated, maybe to Los Angeles or maybe to New York, more recognized as media centers than the cornfields of eastern Indiana. And Jim Davis said to me, Mike, I always turn them down because you have to have a sense of humor to live in Indiana. Well, let's hope Jim Davis and this big orange cat always live in Indiana. They are a source of pride, not only their creativity and their energy, but their philanthropy and their commitment to the quality of life of the families of our region. We thank you, Jim. Congratulations to you and that big, fat, lazy cat. I yield back the balance of my time. The gentleman yields back. Ms. Jones of Ohio.